I do love the smell of the hunt and the taste of the shunt. What's up, guys and gals? Welcome to the Horror Flicks and Guitar Picks podcast. I'm your host, Trashmouth, and this week, my guest is the one and only legendary writer, director, and producer, Brian Usna. Brian Usna is one of the minds behind the Reanimator series, as well as one of the minds behind Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, From Beyond, Dolls, and many more. So enjoy the interview as we talk about a bunch of those movies. Go follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and here it goes. It's nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on the show. Nice to meet you. If you don't mind, we can actually start before your uh, horror movie career started. If you don't mind, just tell me a little bit about what your relationship was with horror movies growing up, you know, before you actually got into the, you know, um, movie making business. So before that, why don't you tell me about your podcast and what kind of stuff you cover? Okay. Uh, it's got an odd name. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I do is I, uh, I have musicians come on the podcast and then I interview them about their favorite horror movies. So instead of like uh, reviewing or going over certain horror movies, they just come on and talk about their favorites and then some of their experiences with horror movies and stuff. So as well as whatever music they're working on at the time, you know, but okay. But yeah, to break up the monotony of like uh, musicians every single week, I like to have a horror person on every now and then. Like I had uh, uh, W Earl Brown on, you know, he played Kenny and scream and um, Mm -hmm. I had uh, Millie Shapiro on once, you know, she was uh, in hereditary and stuff like that. So. No, if you don't mind, we can uh, start the podcast with, like, my first question, you know, what was your uh, relationship with horror movies before, you know, starting to work on Reanimator? Did you grow up a big fan? I know that, uh, I think I saw that you li- uh, lived on a commune in North Carolina. Did you? Well, I grew up actually outside of the country. Okay. I moved to, to Atlanta, Georgia for the ninth grade. Okay. But I was born in the Philippines and I, I grew up in Nicaragua, Panama, and Puerto Rico, so basically Latin America. And um, so I was not in the, um, you know, I saw things from afar, yeah. you know, uh, American culture. <laughs> but, I, but from the time I was very young, the first time I got, you know, a dime allowance, I bought a horror comic. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. So I'm not sure if it was actually a... Um, a um, EC comic, mm. you know, like Tales from the Crypt and all those. Yeah. Um, but it could have been. It could have been. But I mean, they were pretty, you know, I didn't understand what what irony and satire were yeah. until I was in grammar school and somebody showed me a mad magazine. Oh, hell yeah. And I was shocked. Yeah. You know? It was a, it, they had a kind of a satire on an you know, back then, everybody had match matchbooks. Yeah. Right? You didn't have the disposable lighters or anything. And matchbooks always had an ad on them. Mm-hmm. And very often, they would even have where you could write your name and fill it out and you'd order something. And a lot of what they would sell you was classes to be a plumber or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And Mad Magazine did a, a spoof on that. And they had it be you could get a class to be a burglar or a safe cracker or, you know, some, some criminal thing. And when I saw it, I was shocked. I don't know if I was in 
second, third grade. I don't know. Yeah. And it was like, I was so shocked that that could have, you know, it was like upset my world. <laughs> but then I finally realized that of course that's satire. Yeah. Uh, you know, and actually that's been a big part of my life ever since is the, is how you express things through satire and irony, <laughs> you know? And so I, but I, I always, you know, so I had the comic books as a base. Yeah. I, of course, had lots of, you know, I bought throughout my, especially my grammar school into junior high. Yeah. I was all comic. You know, I did a lots of, I did lots of comic books and started with horror comics. But I also um, saw a horror movie when I was very young. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I must have been like six years old and we would go on Sundays. I lived in Panama, six or seven. And we, on Sundays, we would go to see the kids show. They do a double feature and three stooges cartoon and some RKO serial, you know, like rocket man or, or captain Marvel or something, Batman, one of those things. Yeah. And, one time they showed the creature with the atom brain. Okay. <laughs> which you're probably not familiar with. No, not at all. That and, sounds awesome. No. And it's basically a zombie movie, except they put like this sort of tarantula thing inside the skull and then they get on a little television and tell them what to do. And it's, and it's, it's, in, in, there's scenes direct, kind of very much inspired from Frankenstein. Yeah. Especially one where, uh, they, it's about a cop and his partner and the partner dies and gets reanimated mm-hmm. and he's being controlled and of course nobody knows it. He comes to the house of, the, of his partner and is left on the couch with uh, his little daughter and she shows them her doll Yeah, and he, he rips it apart. You know, I mean, it, he, we don't even see him rip it apart, but it's yeah. ripped apart and she's scared. And I never realized that that was actually the very, that's basically the scene from the original Frankenstein when he sees the little girl on the water and in the book, he actually pulls her limb, pulls her limbs off. Yeah. In the movie, movie, he pulls the flower in, in, um, in the creature from the Adam brain. It's a doll. Um, but I was so scared. I mean, they, this was zombie stuff, you know. Yeah. And um, and I was so scared I couldn't sleep for 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 days. And my mother just got all upset. Said, "You're never going. We're never going back to that Sunday thing." <laughs> and this was in Panama. I mean, it wasn't Americans. It was all Spanish people, right? We yeah. lived in the in the in the city. And um, but then of course we did go back. And yeah. it nauseated me that it really upset me and i so for quite a while i sort of had this theory after i grew up and wondered why i am still a horror fan because most people are horror fans when they're adolescents it's very i mean it fits in with being like in puberty yeah people transforming and weird Mm -hmm. desires and sex and death and you know, that's horror. Yeah. And, um, but some people don't get over it. And so I always thought maybe that's because they had an experience like mine. Yeah. That you sort of get infected by it. And, 
that, you know, I had other movies that really affected me like that. I would say The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which was yeah. the, you know, that's a great movie. Yeah. And I still love it. I, you know, um, and I love Harryhausen mm. in general. Um, but that one kept me up. That I couldn't sleep because of the skeleton fight and also because of the the woman that dances with the snake or she gets in the urn yeah they throw the snake and she becomes a snake woman and i think it, that's the, a transformation yeah. i've always i've always been partial to transformations and also and there's a sexual element to it which horror generally always has yeah sort of a a real sexual element to it and that really but I, but it was, it's a fantasy movie. Not yeah. really, it's not a horror movie. It has that same effect. And finally, and, and I saw like horror of, you know, the early Hammer ones, mm. real, you know, they were like in color with blood and heaving breasts and stuff. Yeah. And then I think finally in the, when I was in middle school, that's when, or I guess I was in sixth or seventh grade, mm. and that's when Psycho came out. And boy, oh, yeah. that just that just knocked me for a loop. Yeah. You know? But along the way, I was able to see, you know, at one point before Psycho, I saw House on Haunted Hill, mm. the William Castle movie. Yeah. And that was the kind of movie, it was just for my age. <laughs> I think I must have been eleven. Yeah. And or ten or something. And that that's the kind of movie that's just horror for fun it has scares mm. but it's just you know it's just a ride yeah. you know and that at that point i realized how much fun horror could be and that kind of carry you know once i was in junior high that's when the corpsman was doing homes pit and the pendulum and, yeah. and tales of terror and those were right down my alley so I watched tons of horror, every chance I could get, especially since when I was in grammar school, we didn't even have TV. I was living in a third world country. So you had to go to the movies. Uh, so, you know, so I was always into horror. You know, once I went to college, I saw less horror, but I've always been a big fan. You know, I've always really been a fan of horror. So then when I, you know, I was, you know, I graduated from high school in 67, which you, your parents probably even aren't that old. And, and it was, that was a time of upheaval. Yeah. Um, similar to today with the capital insurrection and stuff, except now it's on the right wing. Back then it was the left. And there was yeah. a lot of, it was a lot of, um, it was all coalesced around the Vietnam War and the protest against that. And things, there was just, you know, the cities were burning, colleges were being canceled. You know, it was quite a, I mean, not in 67, that waited until like 70, 69 or 70. Yeah. But it was a big, it was the summer of love, 67. It was the great, it was, you know, LSD and, <laughs> and great I mean, music, still great talking about music, come on. Yeah. What, you know, last night I, I, I listened to, you probably don't even know this band, uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service. No, I've never heard of that. That's, that's from, that's from like 67 or 68. But yeah. they had like one side of the album. It's just all instrumental. You know? Yeah. 
one side, but oh, yeah. it's kind of like a Grateful Dead type of thing. But okay. you know, the music from there, but at that time, music became the big thing, not movies. Yeah. There were movies, you're into movies, but music was important, I think in a way that I don't know if it's ever been that important again for young people. It's big, it's always important, yeah. always important. But it really was something else because it also at that time, the commercialization, you know, the monetization of it mm. was less. People didn't really, there was this idea that you shouldn't do it for money. Yeah. That all came in in the 80s with Reagan. Yeah. When Reagan came in, greed is good and <laughs> everything's about getting rich and being a celebrity. Yeah. But there was this idea that you shouldn't do that, you know. Yeah. Um, but that was, uh, you know, in, in, but then again in 69, that was Night of the Living Dead time. Hell yeah. And I remember when I first saw Night of the Living Dead, it was like, wow. And I think Night of the Living Dead is, in my book, it's like the beginning of the modern age of horror movies. Yeah, no if doubt. If you want to make, if you want to, you know, there's certain time periods. I would say the early 30s with Frankenstein, you know, the, the, the um, universal horror of Frankenstein and Dracula and the yeah. Wolfman. That's a real, that's a very special time in horror. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd I would certainly, one. pardon? I was just going to say the only, uh, like, honestly, and you already mentioned it a little bit, but the only other, like, huge milestone in horror prior to Night of the Living Dead was Psycho, you know, other than the, like yeah. you said, the Universal Monsters. Like, if you were to start picking out milestones of horror, I think those would be, like, your first three, really, or a lot of people's first three. You know, you'd have some people that would uh, definitely try to pick out, like, the Ed Wood films and, like, you know, like the crazy, like, no, but weird they stuff. But, but, no, but, but they weren't, no, no they, they weren't mainstream. Yeah. They weren't cultural kind of you know um, effects yeah um, and the reason it, it skipped so much of anything really important is because of world war ii so there was a whole period you know from the early mid-30s to the mid-40s where yeah you know but there was of course there's always been great stuff you got the val luton movies in the 40s yeah um, you have the you know the the um in the 50s god you got all that great stuff like the incredible shrinking man the fly yeah um, the hammer was very important i would say in the 50s yeah maybe hammer was the big thing and also remember godzilla was 50s true and that true. kicked off Monster. the giant well no well we had king kong in the 30s true but then in the 50s you have godzilla which took it into the new you know a new generation yeah um so but for horror, um, I mean, Night of the Living Dead was huge. I yeah. mean, it really was so scary. Today, you can watch it with your kids. It's nothing. Yeah. You know? But when it first came out, it was just, it was just really impressive. Yeah. And I always think that horror, always the watching a hor horror implies a kind of a nauseous feeling, yeah. kind of a physical feeling. So I, if you watch something that's scary and suspenseful, it's, um, I think that's like, you know, a thriller, yeah. terror, you know, somebody's chasing you down, you're afraid, you yeah. know, but horror 
always usually it has some kind of a physical a bodily fluid thing. It can be blood, it can be goop, it can be, you know, but there's usually something, you know, kind, kind of goopy about it, some kind of yeah. liquid thing. It's very physical and it, and it has, it gives you a feeling of nausea. Yeah. You know, the feeling of horror is, is a different feeling from just being scared, yeah. you know? And so that, but that's what um, Night of the Living Dead delivered in spades at its time, you know? Yeah. And it really kicked off, you know, of course the next probably, probably the next big one, it was, was Dawn of the Dead. I don't know, yeah. you know, and then you had, you know, the Texas Chainsaw, which yeah. is really actually an art movie. The Exorcist is probably yeah. in there too. Well, Exorcist, well, Rosemary's yeah. Baby. Yeah, okay, yeah. So 69 is probably 70. Is, that's mainstream. And boy, that is a great movie. And, yeah. You know, and I'm sure that there's tons of people today who haven't seen it. And you kind of just go, you know, go look at the ones, go look at the famous ones. Yeah. And you'll see why they're famous. And if you, and read the book of Rosemary's Baby, the movie is just straight ahead. Hell yeah. the book. But that's a great movie. And The Exorcist was huge. And Jaws would then be a, you know, that started the summer movie trend. But before yeah. Jaws, people didn't go to the movies in the summer. Like in Spain, uh, in Europe, they still kind of don't, you know, because they go on vacation. Yeah. There was always this idea that um, in the summer, people go on vacation, they're not going to the movies. But yeah. Jaws changed all that. And you could say that Jaws is certainly, it's part of the continuum of King Kong and Godzilla to Jaws. Yeah. You know? And, and we, then there's the Exorcist just knocked it out of the park. Yeah, Jaws know? is uh, one of those that definitely would be a milestone as far as linking a mainstream audience to horror. Like you said, as far as like, you know, some of those earlier, bigger movies did and stuff. But uh, now I just wanted to show you real quick about Rosemary's Baby. I bought this shirt from this local company called Toxic Coffin and it's Rosemary's Baby shirt. And look at this little, uh, I don't know if you can see it, but it's, it's the, the birth uh, <laughs> yeah, the uh, baby shower invitation. I thought that was pretty cool. Like little thing for them to add with the shirt or whatever. <laughs> and I'll add another, another little thing. Another reason to watch Rosemary's baby Hell yeah. is that um, one of my main collaborators in, in making movies with Stuart Gordon mm. I started out with, with reanimator and dolls and from beyond yeah. honey, I shrunk the kids. Um, when we were preparing Reanimator, which yeah. was our, for both of us, it was our first movie. And um, we watched movies to get to kind of, you know, they always say the language of film is film. Yeah. Not that any, not that film figures into it at all anymore. <laughs> but the, but we watched Rosemary's Baby probably three, three times. Yeah. And that's the movie that Stuart thought the style of shooting would fit for reanimator. So he used reanimator, you know, Polanski's style of doing everything over the shoulder and rosemaries in every shot. Yeah. Um, to as his kind of touchstone for, for reanimator. Okay. Hell yeah. And I could definitely see that. Like when you're following uh, Dean Kane down the hallway into the morgue in the very beginning of the movie and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, all of it, uh, I, you know, I always knew that on any scene, Stuart yeah. was going to do an over the shoulder. <laughs> Hell yeah. And did uh, 
would you say that House on Haunted Hill was one that you kind of were inspired by as well, seeing as like you well, said? Well, for me, it is. Wrong. Not for Stuart. Yeah. I mean, I can't speak for him. For me, yes. House yeah. on Haunted Hill was, was a big movie for me. Yeah. Um, there are certain movies that even weren't horror movies that inspired, that I realized later, you know, inspired me that I, you know, once I got it, I didn't know any, I didn't have any, I've never taken a, a movie class or anything like that. I never, a college dropout, I studied religion and art. Mm -hmm. I, you know, back in the early seventies, you know, Timothy Leary said, turn on, tune in, drop out. <laughs> and I was one of those. I went, yeah, I'm going to turn on, tune in and drop out. So I dropped out. You know? Yeah. And then just, of course, kind of moved out and did too many psychedelics and, you know, went out where, you know, I mean, of course it was another era too. You didn't have a cell phone. Yeah. I didn't even have a phone, you know, and there was, you know, you're just out in the country with, with a bunch of hippies, yeah. you know, thinking that the revolution's coming. Everybody yeah. said the revolution is coming. Well, the revolution didn't come. So then it's kind of like, well, how are we going to make a living? Yeah. <laughs> So I started working as a carpenter because I lived, I had moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Okay. And at that time you could always get a job with a hammer. Yeah. You know, you just needed a nail belt and a hammer. And then I started being a kind of a foreman and, and then I even got to where I was, you know, I built some houses on spec, but yeah. I also did art. I had an art supply store. I did lots of, um, I, I painted, I did art show, I sold paintings, I, I had, an, uh, you know, I even invested in, you know, bars and, you know, just anything to make money because I, I kind of dropped out. Yeah. Now, shout but out North Carolina. That's where I'm from, actually. That's where I'm at right now is North Carolina. But you're from Charlotte? Well, I'm, uh, I'm in uh, Elizabeth City, like three hours away from Charlotte, like pretty close to the Outer Banks. Oh, yeah. I love the Outer Banks. I like yeah. Ocracoke. I'm like an hour from uh, like the like Hill Devil Hills, about an hour and a half from Ocracoke. So, yeah, no, I love North Carolina. I still have a, um, I have the first house I bought in was in Chapel Hill. Oh hell yeah! And I still I still have it. We rent it. My wife is from is from um, Winston Salem. Okay. And and Belmont, Belmont in Charlotte. Yeah. And um, so we're I I lived in North Carolina for like twelve years. Awesome. Two of my kids were born there. And yeah. actually, I would have stayed there, but I couldn't get anybody to take making a movie seriously. Yeah. So I made my amateur movie there, and you couldn't even get people to show up. Yeah. You know, you can't, you know, uh, you know, so I just, so that's why I went to L.A. You know? Yeah. Yeah, because I think the only when movie. When I came to L.A., I found out that everybody here was like me. They're from yeah. somewhere else, and back then you couldn't do it there. Today you can. I think it's. I think it's different today. Yeah. But you do need. You know, LA is real important because it's. But it's similar in the in the music business. You got to go to LA or you got to go to Nashville. You, know, yeah. you got to go where the business is. Once you're established, well, then you can live wherever you want. Yeah. You can do whatever you want. But to get started, you got to go where the if you're in the fashion business, you probably got to go to Milan or New York. Or, you know, if you're in theater, you should probably go to New York or Chicago. Yeah. So, I, I was going to say the only horror movie I think that came out of the 80s in North Carolina was uh, The Mutilator, uh, Fall Breaks. So. Mutilator? Yeah. I think anything <laughs> well, else was just. There like was a, a lot of stuff shot. Well, 
in the 80s, yeah. I think there was still this guy, Earl Owensby, yeah. from, from Charlotte, who made, you know, he was always in them. He was the wolf man. <laughs> like, you know, they were terrible movies, but he made his own studio. Yeah. This was in the late 70s, maybe. And he, um, but it was funny because he made a movie called Wolfman, where he, he was always the star. Yeah. And he was the wolfman, but he was such a hirsute or hairy guy. He was natural. You know, some people are naturally, they yeah. got hair all over their body. Like right? Austin Powers. <laughs> so you kind of look at, yeah. So you, you'd watch him turn into a werewolf. He's not turning much. Yeah. He's already a werewolf from the beginning, you know. So Earl Owensby was pretty famous in North yeah. Carolina at that time because he was the only guy doing it. But I know they, they even back in the 80s, they went down to the shoot Children of the Corn. And yeah. then, of course, Dino De Laurentiis actually made a studio in Wilmington. Yeah, I was going to say Blue Velvet was in uh, Wilmington, I know. Some yeah. Of it. And I think that if I had been 10 years later, mm. I would have stayed there because there would be work, you know. Yeah. I'm probably lucky that I was forced to come to L.A. Then. Oh, no, definitely. It, well, it's just that you're you're dealing with, I mean, it's much more competitive, mm. but there's so many people that are like-minded, you know, and that's very important when you're, when you're trying to do any, when you're young and you're trying to do something. Although I didn't even begin to make movies. I didn't even think about doing it until I was 30. Yeah. So I'm not, I never took a class and, and I, I didn't know what I was doing. I borrowed a bunch of money and, <laughs> and, um, and decided I'd go to Hollywood, you know, but um, I'm lucky that I'm still alive. Yeah. <laughs> well, like you said, it's like a, it's a good thing that you went to California. Cause I mean, you know, even if it would have worked out here, it's like, you kind of made like a little movie family going forward. You know, you met Stuart Gordon and I know like your actual family worked on some of the, a lot of your films with you as well and stuff like that, especially your wife uh, with like casting and stuff like that. But um, you know, going forward, um, I don't want to skip too far ahead because I do want to talk about uh, what led to you guys writing Honey, I Shrunk the Kids on top of writing from beyond. How does Let's just talk about that real quick, and then we'll uh, move forward, of course, with like the other, you know, the rest well, of that question. Stuart, you know, Stuart Gordon was a theater director. Yeah. And he was the creative director of the Organic Theater in Chicago. And he had been, when I met him, he was already established. He was, we're about, we're just like the same age. Yeah. But he had, I had been kind of losing my mind on communes and stuff, mm -hmm. but, and doing all kinds of different businesses. You know, once I decided I had to, to make money and all that, I, you know, I just did all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, but Stuart from the, time he was in high school, I guess, because Dennis Paoli, who's the writer, basically the main writer of Reanimator with Stewart and, and William Norris. Mm. Um, Dennis was, um, you know, he was with Stewart in high school. And Stewart already had an acting group in high school. Then when he went to college, he couldn't get into the film part. There weren't that many, you know, back then there weren't that many yeah. Film departments. No, everything was it would harder. Be the back motion then. picture. It would be radio, theater, radio, motion pictures, and something. You know, it wasn't like TV. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't like today, where everything is movie, movie, movie. Mm. And 
but he did theater and directed theater and he just really um, learned his craft and then went to Chicago and did the organic theater and had great success, you know, great success. So he had already been a professional director for 10 years yeah. when we made Reanimator. So I was so lucky because I went, I just, if, you know, I, I borrowed money personally to make the movie. Yeah. And if it had flopped, if I hadn't, you know, I'd probably still be paying it off. You know? Yeah. I mean, and I had two kids by then, you know, so it wasn't a lightweight thing. But yeah. Stuart, you think of people making their first movie. Yeah, it was his first movie, but he was a, he was an established theater director. He, he was yeah. a real deal. So I think one of the things about the animator was that people didn't, couldn't understand, you know, it was kind of a shock that this low budget kind of schlocky horror movie yeah. was so well directed. It was so well made, you know, it was just, we're not used to that, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's, um, you know, that's because he was, he was already a, um, you know, he was already a director. And now Dennis, Dennis would says that at the organic theater, they did everything, mm. all kinds of sci-fi, whatever, comedy. I think one of the biggest successes they ever had was Bleacher Bums, which yeah. is a play that takes place. It's just a bunch of people sitting on the bleachers at a Chicago Cubs game at Wrigley Field. <laughs> And it's them talking to each other during the game. Yeah. Where the organic theater was is very close to Wrigley Field. Um, the oh, yeah. Chicago Cubs play. And that thing, it's still playing here in LA. It's okay. a perennial. It's so that has, that's not even a genre. You know? Yeah. But Stewart is a horror fan. He's a, he was a real horror fan, but he did everything. Yeah. And Dennis said, you know, we could have done anything, but you wanted to do horror. And of course, once, because I was dedicated to horror. Yeah. I thought if I'm going to risk my future and make a movie, by God, it better be a horror movie. I don't <laughs> blame I, you. I don't know. Yeah. I'll tell you, you know, it's funny when I was in, in Barcelona, at one point, Tom Waits was visiting Barcelona and yeah. somehow we ended up at a dinner together and discussing movies and he said, so it's horror, it's horror movies, right? And I said, yeah. And I explained it to him. He says, oh, I see. Horror is like the rock and roll of movies. Yeah. And I said, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> horror is the rock and roll of movies. You know, people are dedicated to horror the yeah. way they are to rock and roll. So, but, but we, um, you know, when we, when I first met Stuart, I first watched his movies mm. and then I said, yeah, let's do something. We had dinner at his house and Carolyn, uh, his wife was there and he, and his kid and, and he had a couple ideas and one of them, he already had a script for reanimator, a 50 yeah. page script for a TV show, a TV pilot. And I told him I, I'd never read reanimator. But I read the thing and I said, well, listen, I'm, I'm all game for that, but I don't, I want to do a movie. Yeah. I want to do a, a Hollywood movie. 
And um, so if you want to develop it into that, let's do it. And actually, almost exactly one year later, we began shooting in, in L.A. Thank you. So it went that fast. Yeah. yeah. So after we had, you know, Reanimated was a crazy, crazy success. I didn't realize it because I was so new to the whole thing. And plus, uh, unfortunately, I gave it to a company to sell it, Empire Pictures, hmm. and they didn't give me any of the money. So instead of becoming a millionaire, yeah, I was in debt, right? But that's typical Hollywood. Yeah. You've got to be careful, you know. But then we did do, you know, before I knew we weren't getting any money out of them, yeah. we produced Dolls and From Beyond for Empire. They yeah. paid for that. But then I had to... I had to sue them for money for the money, which of course was gone by then. Yeah. And um, and then I was working with Stewart on Robot Jocks, and we couldn't, you know, we I, I couldn't work with them anymore. I couldn't work with that company anymore. Yeah. Since I was, you know, we had these contretemps, and um, so at one point after Reanimator, Stewart and I were we were in my backyard right here in Hollywood. And we were having a barbecue and we both have kids. By that, at that time, I think I had two or three kids. Yeah. He had two. And he said, you know, we can't, we got these little kids, you know, they can't be watching Reanimator. Let's make a movie for our kids. Okay. Hell yeah. And I said, you know, I always imagined when I was a kid, I'd get down into the grass and imagine being real little by the roots of the tree and how exciting it would all be like yeah. this whole wild world and Stuart said yeah yeah the kids get shrunk their dad's an inventor there's a machine and we just within just by sitting around drinking beer and and having a barbecue yeah we came up with a lot pretty much the whole structure of the story they get thrown out in the backyard and they've got to get home the story yeah. is they got to get home and so so then Stuart, when, after Reanimator was critically quite a success, mm. um, Stuart was pretty well connected because of his theater and he had a lot of the actors he worked with were in Hollywood. So he got this really top up and coming agent yeah. and who then got us a, a pitch meeting at, um, at Disney. At yeah. that time, we called we called the movie Teeny Weenies, <laughs> and um, and so we were actually in living in Rome making dolls and from beyond. Okay, hell yeah. And we got a and we got a pitch meeting at Disney because we when we came up with the idea, we said, oh, it should be a Disney movie. Yeah, Fred McMurray should be in it because you know Fred McMurray because of you know the absent-minded professor and the shaggy dog you know, yeah it would be that kind of movie and um and so we flew back from rome on an alitalia flight and in the back of the plane back then these flights were pretty empty yeah and Stuart took out a legal pad and we sat down and wrote the pitch the outline yeah and when we came so then the next day in la we went to disney and pitched it and boy, it just just went forward. You know, yeah, it went forward. 
Hell yeah. No, that's awesome. That's one of my favorite uh, movies growing up. And I'll be 100% honest with you. I did not know that you had anything to do with it, being a reanimator fan and everything like that. And so recently, I actually put it on Disney Plus and uh, it like at the beginning, I was actually like paying attention to the credits and it said Brian Usna and uh, Stuart Gordon. I was like, holy fucking shit. Like, I didn't even know. Well, you know, what's funny is that we actually um, developed the whole thing. We planned mm. it. We did all the storyboards. Stuart was directing and I was producing, I moved, it was shot in Mexico and my family, I moved them down to Mexico yeah. City. And we were like a, like three or four weeks from shooting. And then Stuart had to quit because of health problems. Damn. And That's... then once that happened, they yeah. got another director. And of course the director brings his own producer. So Stuart and I ended up with the story credit because we, we came up with, you know, we wrote the story. Yeah, and I would I got demoted from producer to co-producer, <laughs> you know. Of course, <laughs> but it was it was what I call my brush with the big time. <laughs> yeah, Disney's like we can't have uh, the trailer say from the producer of Reanimator and from Beyond. No, they knew that. No, they know, knew just, who just... Stewart was. Yeah, but and it was it was they were a little concerned because um, because of that we had you know we had a meeting with Jeffrey Katzenberg and. No, I mean, we went through the, we thought we were, we were, we were on our way. Yeah. You know, we were on our way. And if Stuart hadn't had his uh, medical issues, our careers would have been totally different. We, the guy that came in to do it ended up doing Jumanji and, you know, all these kinds. So we would have been Jurassic Park three or whatever. Yeah. And so that probably would have been our trajectory. Although maybe not because I think Stewart was, you know, I'm not sure that I think that he he did end up getting a housekeeping deal at Disney. Yeah. You know, he I think his his talent was and he had the agent and it was all quite um he was quite respected. Yeah. I don't think he ever I don't know, it's tough to deal within that system, mm. that uh, the studio system if you haven't come up in it. And for people like, I mean, Stewart had his, that theater, organic theater, it was a business, but, and it was for real, but it was, um, you know, it was like he did whatever he wanted. Yeah. And I think that, and you can see that it's really hard to make it, you know, how many indie, independent, you know, um, filmmakers, directors or producers actually are able to, kind of handle the, the the big time or the yeah big studios I think i mean i think only i think of maybe only um sam raimi mm. you know was able to go from a reanimator like beginning to peter jackson too maybe. doing actual yes with bad taste and uh oh oh, right. oh with lord of the rings of course yeah yeah of course yeah and he was able to do it at home. Yeah. <laughs> but look at Toby Hooper, you yeah. know, or George Romero, or, I mean, uh, even John Carpenter, I would say, you know, yeah. I mean, he, you know, from Halloween, you know, to the thing was probably the first one, you know, but eventually he ended up doing, you know, like he did um, Big Trouble in Little China and it was just too weird. Yeah. And then 
then you end up with like memoirs of a of an invisible man and you just realize that his the way he makes move luckily of course he you know he became independently wealthy off of halloween he yeah he didn't make the mistake i made <laughs> you know and give it you know he, he was a little more professional so he did it's not like it's, i think for him it's not the money yeah it's the career but it's really hard to work within within that system and i think someone like stewart was i mean his talent was is he's just a more talented uh, better director than I think most of the people who do big movies, yeah. but you have to be able to do it. It's kind of like being able to cook, yeah. being a great cook and being able to be the chef of a big restaurant. Yeah. It's totally different. You know, the, the requirements and everything. So I think that's why, you know, there's something about the, the low budget independent kind of, um, of movies that, um, you know, it doesn't mean because you can do that, that you can do the bigger stuff. And I think I'm in that category. I just never, if I had, I started as the producer, I started as the boss. Yeah. So I've always been, I'm always going to be limited by being the the big fish in the little pond. <laughs> Whereas yeah. somebody like Steven Spielberg, he came up through the studio doing yeah. TV. He came up, so he was really able to um you know to take advantage of that even people like um francis ford coppola yeah he was in hollywood these guys came up in their 20s dealing with the studios when the studios were kind of in disarray but i think when you if you take someone who comes from outside or very difficult to to deal with the kind of pressures that you and requirements you have when you're dealing with a big you know a big studio and yeah. anybody who can do it you've got to admire you know you have to admire the people who can make the huge movies and you know who they are and they can still kind of make a mark on them yeah that's that's quite an achievement now i know exactly what you mean and uh not to like knock anybody but like the newer director ty west i'm a huge fan of all his movies but the first one that seemed to have like a real big studio backing was cabin fever 2 and they completely did a bunch of stuff that he didn't want done to the movie. And it seemed like it just overwhelmed him. And I don't think he's made a movie since because of it. You know, it's, Hasn't he? he's, uh, he's lined up now with, didn't, a he do that? didn't he do that? Didn't he do that one about the birds in the barn or something? What was that one? The three movies I know he did was, uh, the innkeepers. He did the sacrament right. and then he did the house of the devil. But I think all those were before, uh, cabin fever. Tough. It's tough, man. You know, yeah. I, 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 you know, I, um, I remember I would go to um, to um, Blockbuster back way back in the day. Yeah. And Blockbuster used to have this big kind of Bible in the middle of the store, at least here. Yeah. And it was like like a huge dictionary, and it was basically the precursor of IMDb movie database. Hell yeah. It had like writers, directors, producers, actors sections. And alphabetically, they would list them yeah. for every movie that they knew of. And all they would do is put the name like of the director or the actor or the writer and list their credits. That's all they did. And I would go over there and it's not like Blockbuster had all those movies. They would just give you that. Yeah. And I remember I'd look at the directors and almost 
so few of them had more than one or two credits. So few. Anybody that had three or four, and you look, I remember I'd look at that and I'd go, this was when I was thinking, you know, I was thinking about directing. Yeah. And because with producing, you can make deals. It's a lot of ways. I mean, when I started producing, I did it. I thought it was my movie. Yeah. You know, I'm controlling the movie. But there's a lot of different levels of producing. There's a lot of ways to produce. You know, there's so many. There can be so many producers on a movie. There's, you know, it's not yeah. directing. There's usually one director. Writing, there's not more than a handful. Yeah. You know? And but when you but you'd look and say, man, it's um, if you're going to try to you know direct, you the odds are against you. Yeah. You can't make a living. I guess you can go to TV or back then go to TV or do back then music videos or going yeah. to commercials or I mean there's a lot of different levels of the of entertainment business or the audiovisual business yeah. that you can try to make a living at. But to direct movies, that's tough. And um I thought, you know, for me it was I you know, it's like I don't know how you're doing, you know. I mean yeah. I've I've luckily been able to hang in there, you know. <laughs> But it's not easy. You know? Yeah. No, speaking of that, uh, your first directorial debut was uh, Society, if I'm not mistaken. And how'd you link up with uh, Woody Keith and Rick Fry, you know, to, to uh, put that movie together? And I think that was, if I'm not mistaken, your first film was Screaming Mad George as well. Yeah. I had, um, you know, it was where I was, I did those two movies for Empire. Yeah. I, because Reanimator, I gave to Empire to release. Well, it took about a year before, after we finished Reanimator, it took about a year before I realized that I wasn't going to see any money. Yeah. You know? But by that time, we had shot both Dolls and From Beyond, mm. and we were in post. And so then I, um, then of course, at that same time, we were, Stuart and I were developing Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And I mean, and we were doing robot jocks, but I bailed on that. Mm. And Around that time, a friend of mine was the um, head of sale, foreign sales for Empire. Yeah. I met him there. And he split off and was doing, he's a Brit, and he was doing his own. He had, um, it was a partner with a guy named Paul White, mm -hmm. another British guy who lived in Tokyo and had a, had a Japanese wife and family. And was in the uh, movie business or the entertainment business in Tokyo. And Paul, at that time, Japan had just, you know, that they had all the money. Yeah. Then. And so Paul was able to raise money to produce movies. And he got Woody, I mean, Keith Wally, to would be setting up a foreign sales company. And when I, so when, and w when I was in Italy doing Dolls and From Beyond, Keith Wally was actually stayed at my house, took care of my house. Okay. Hell yeah. Um, so he was a friend of mine. Yeah. And they were producing these super low budget movies, even cheap, cheaper than what Empire was doing at that time. Yeah. And, but I went, I visited the set and I was like, really, I liked it. I liked that stuff, that Corman type of thing where yeah. you just, you know, it's just like, it's you fun. do what you want. Yeah, yeah, it's not like there's a whole, it's like a garage band. Yep. Uh, you're not doing the whole, you know, the studio isn't telling you what you need to do. And um, 
so then I at the, also at that time, so I wanted to work with them. And also at that time, I was developing a project with Dan O'Bannon, the guy who uh, wrote Aliens and directed Night, uh, Return of the Living Dead. And yeah. you know, Dan O'Bannon's an incredible talent. Yeah. And so he had this idea called The Men about a woman who discovers that all men are aliens. And at that time, that was a pretty cool idea. Yeah. And it was really fun. And so I talked to him. I said, let's develop it. And you write it, I'll produce it. Let's get Stuart to direct it. And as we, we had some meetings, and then Dan decided he wanted to direct. So we went forward um, with it that way. Yeah. I spent nine months working with him. And it was a fun kind of crazy horror thriller yeah. paranoia, the weird, you know, a, a world that you didn't see. Every man was an alien, right? Yeah. Told from the woman's point of view. And then when I finally got some, some interest in financing it, Dan, who's quite a, a character or was, kind of bailed on. Damn. And so I lost the project. Yeah. And then I thought, uh, then I was like very frustrated. And um, that was also right after Stewart had to drop out of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids because of only just because of um, some health problems. Yeah. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to direct. Of course, I kind of really did because almost anybody who's on a movie set for any length of time starts thinking, yeah, I might like to direct. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll play lead guitar <laughs> thing, even though I don't actually can't sing and I don't know how to play the guitar. Yeah. And so that was sort of where I was coming from. It's like, well, you know, I'll try directing. And, um, and so I want to be a one-stop shop, you know, I don't want to lose projects as the yeah. director. So I was at that time talking with Paul White and Woody Key, uh, Keith Wally, their company was called Wild Street Pictures. And I said, well, let's, I'll tell you what, I've got the, you know, I have, I own reanimators. I own the sequel rights. Hell yeah. So how about it? I mean, I could have gone to a studio with the sequel, right? Yeah. But of course, my mentality is, you know, I don't want to have anybody tell me what to do. Yeah. And um, so I said, I'll do the sequel with you guys. But it has, I have to direct it. And I ha it has to be a two picture deal because I realized I knew that I didn't know anything about directing except watching people on set. Yeah. And I thought, man, I might be terrible at it. It might. I've never directed actors. And if it's awful, I'll never get another chance. So I want to do two pictures. And the second one would be the reanimator sequel. So oh, I yeah. at least get, so if I screw up, I get one more chance. Yeah. And it'd be on something and, you're um, familiar with at least. So, well, it's just, it was just, a, it was just a gambit. Yeah. And so, so we agreed to that. Mm. And, um, and so around that time, Rick Fry came to my office and gave me the script of society. And when I read it, it had the same paranoia that the men did. Yeah. So it was, it was like I was, except it was a different gimmick. Instead yeah. of it being sex, a sex thing, it was a class thing and a, oh, yeah. and a family kind of thing. And it was very, just like the men, it's hugely satirical and ironic. Yeah. And it's really paranoiac. And the only problem for me and I had been living in that world, so I was already bought in. I already bought it. You know? Yeah. I, I was like, yes, this is it. It's what I've, this is where I've been for nine months. And 
so I um, so the only thing was is that it didn't have any real fantastical element. The in in the original script, the society, it was more of a I guess it was sort of like a QAnon thing. Now, it was about they were they were it was a blood cult. Yeah, you know, and that and I was thinking, man, I'm getting my first attempt to direct. It's got to have some weird shit in it. You know, oh, I yeah. want to have I want to have something fantastical. Yeah. And so I tried to think at that time, it was what I call the invasion of the rubber guys in Hollywood. It, the, all the effects were going to methacellulose and foam yeah. latex and all these. It was a great time in the 80s with the effects guys. And the effects guys were just the materials, all those plastic materials. Yeah. You could do stuff that had never been able to be done before. And it was um, to... To the point of your podcast, it was uh, it was it was like you would go into these shops with the or monster effects, motion picture effects, yeah. and they would always be in some one of these places where you rent out units, you know, that you could drive up to. You yeah, know, you, know, you can put any business you want there, and they would be there out in the valley somewhere, like in Sunland or something, where it's real cheap. And you'd go in and everybody would be sculpting weird shit. Hell yeah. And they all would have like black ACDC t-shirts on. And there would be this metal music blasting. And all of them, it, you'd realize that they only had all those monster movie effects guys. They only had two options for their lives. They, <laughs> there, was, there were two things you could do in your life. You know, you could either be a rock and roll star or you could make monsters for movies. That was it, man. You know, and they lived it. They oh, lived yeah. it, you know. <laughs> and so and so when I um, was thinking about what I want, what I'd like to see, because at that time, every movie like Nightmare on Elm Street, they always had different effects guys. And, yeah. and the, you were always looking to see what's new. You know, when you see something like The Howling, and yeah. they do the replacement transformations. And you were going, wow, every, every movie was pushing it a little further. Yeah. And of course, all that stopped when digital came in. It was that stuff just stopped developing. It was puppetry, really. Yeah. And really cool, really cool sculptures and appliances and stuff, bladders. And, yeah. you know. and um, so I was trying to think, what would I like to see that I haven't seen in all these movies lately? And I thought, you know, I'd like to see bodies melding together. I haven't seen that. Yeah. And it's kind of evocative to me. I thought I'd like to see that. And so I talked with, with um, Woody Keith yeah. and Rick Fry. And really, society is almost, it's like Woody Keith's life almost. He's a Beverly Hills kid okay. who has quite, quite an imagination and is a great writer. Yeah. And he's got a new movie out, by the way, that he wrote and produced. It's called Girl Next. I okay. haven't seen it, but I've seen the um I've seen the trailer and it looks pretty good. I'll definitely check it out. So I said, you know, I wanna, you know, I we just developed this whole idea yeah. as a replacement for the blood cult and we called it the shunting. Hell and yeah. then I used then I tried to develop this whole kind of um new new i was trying to make a new monster a new a new a new mythology yeah 
based on class and blue bloods. So I came up with this whole scheme, which I won't bore you with now about the origins of society, but it goes right back to the, you know, prehistory, to caveman days. And, um, and this was all inspired by all the times I worked with Dan O'Bannon. Yeah. I was able to use his mentality, the way he would think, how, the way he would develop stuff. And I used it to kind of develop the script in a little bit different direction. Yeah. And um, at the same time, of course, since Wild Street was financed by Japanese companies, the Japanese companies, um, they asked me if I would take a meeting with um, Screaming Mad George, who is a Japanese effects artist. Now, Screaming Mad George is, uh, is you know, he grew up as, I think it's Joji Tani mm. in um, Japan. And he went to New York and had kind of a punk art band called The Mad. Oh, yeah. And he was a huge fan of Screaming Jay Hawkins. Yeah. So he styled him, and he's a surrealist, and he styled himself Screaming Mad George. George would be Joji. Oh, yeah. And so that's where, so that's how his moniker came about. Yeah. And, um, and, he, and so I met him. And he's, he's a, uh, he, he's definitely almost like a, he's definitely a, a kind of a rock and, or a punk rock kind of guy. Very weird looking, right? Yeah. Um, with makeup and all that. And, um, and he's a surrealist painter, very serious. And so we, I went to his apartment and we looked at all his work and we looked through Dolly books and we watched Andalusian Dog and we... And we already started developing the, the, we started basing the shunting on some Dali paintings. Yeah. And we went to his shop and he showed me all his work and, and I started basing the shunting on his, a lot of his aesthetic, what he could do already, stuff he had already done. Yeah. And um, that's how, you know, he, and then he became my, um, you know, one of my main, main collaborators for, for quite a while. I always, you know, he, I would always go to him for, it had to be for something very, you couldn't go to him for ordinary types of, like if you want to do like uh, a severed head or somebody gets their arm lopped off or, I don't know, there's a lot of stuff. It just wouldn't make sense to go to, to Screaming Mad George because that's not, what he gives you. He gives yeah. you something weird. It's got to be surrealistic. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. You can get you can get so many different effects artists who will give you, they'll put their heart and soul into somebody's head getting cut off. And you'll yeah. get something great, you know. Whereas with George, it's you gotta you want something weird, something challenging. Yeah. And so I I worked with him for for many years until he moved back to to, um, to Japan. Oh yeah, now that makes sense that uh, you say that now because uh, now it makes sense why you guys would bring in you know K and B with Bride of Reanimator to kind of do some of the other stuff. You know that way you just use Screaming Mad George why would for you, his. Yeah, why would you do George to do? Yeah, I mean, work him to death. It's kind I, of <laughs> yeah, I've always. I mean, I guess it on society I only had George. Yeah, but on dolls and from beyond we had lots of art lots of effects guys yeah so much going on that 
Yeah, but what we didn't have was a um, a supervisor. Mm. And one of the problems in dealing with effects guys is that they they can be a bit testy. Yeah. And they don't like to have people tell you know they're like they're actors really. Effects people are artists who are actors. Yeah. Like, you know when the when someone is doing an effect on set, they're actually part of the the actors union. They're yeah. in the Screen Actors Guild because they're performing, whether they're in a suit or if they're puppeteering. And on top of it, they're artists. Yeah. They sculpt and they paint and they do makeup. And so it's very tricky to supervise them. Yeah. And I found early on that um, it was better to break up the effects in a movie um, amongst a bunch of different um, companies, yeah. which went totally, it was totally uh, against the current of thought at that time. And see, even now, mm. it's like low budget people always think, you know, we've only got so much money. We don't have a ton of money. Yeah. So really, we should find one company to do all the effects so that we can give them the whole chunk so it'll be more. Yeah. And my, my opinion is absolutely the opposite. I think that whether you have a lot of money or you don't have much, but especially if you don't have much, that what you should do is find is break the effects into different chunks then mm. you know different effects and find the right company for each one because if you give it all to a big company yeah well they're not the, the there's little stuff you know the minor stuff they're not going to put anything into it yeah but you can hire probably the same people they hire to do it give them the money directly. And those guys want a credit. They want to show what they can do. And they'll take an ordinary effect, or what we would think is a run-of-the-mill yeah. kind of horror effect, and they'll put, they will just go for it. Yeah. And you'll get more than you could ever imagine that way. No, I know exactly what you mean. I actually had somebody recently come on the show and complain about the Mandalorian's effects because uh, oh. <laughs> they were saying that uh, there's like a frog in a bowl that is very like, they're saying like how the movie, how the show has such great effects, but yet there's a frog in a bowl that literally looks like a rubber rubber frog from Dollar General. And I'm like, with all those effects, they couldn't just put a little bit more detail on a rubber frog. So now I definitely understand what you mean to get the details in every little thing. Like uh, it makes sense to kind of, you know, pick people that kind of feel, they feel more like specialists at that point, instead of just like uh, the lower level people, you know what I mean? Even if they are just doing little well, minor I think, Yeah. I mean, a great example is Return of the Living Dead 3. Yeah. Um, in which I had, I had a, I mean, by then I really had, um, you know, I would use special effects supervisors to enter, yeah. to work the effects and find the right companies and get the budgeting and bids and stuff. Oh, yeah. And, um, but what we'd call them a coordinator. Yeah. Because the effects companies wouldn't want anybody supervising them. It wasn't like a producer or something, right? And, um, and you can't do it as a director. You can't, I was producing and directing that. And so there's no way I can, effects take real attention. They take yeah. super attention and they never work on set generally as a, as a rule. They're often going to fail. Mm. And that's why they call them special effects. Yeah. If it was something that never failed, they wouldn't be special effects. They yeah. would just be another thing you do on set. And so a lot of producers and directors, they get freaked out. They get very nervous about special effects. 
because they don't understand them. They probably don't even like them, you know? Yeah. And so and today they just throw it all into post, into digital. And so yeah. you can't even throw, throw blood on a wall in a movie today. They got to do it digitally. And it yeah. looks like crap, you know? The, um, but the reason, but they, they just go, oh, it doesn't work and all this. And it's like, yeah, for it to work every time, that means you've got to pay triple the amount of money. Yeah. Because that company then has to do tests. They, they have to produce it at least three times. Yeah. But if you're going to try to get it for a budget, you've got to accept that this stuff isn't necessarily going to work. And that doesn't mean it's a failure at all. Yeah. It just means you've got to make it work. Yeah. You've got to work with it and get it and find a way to make it to work. You can't, you can't look at it like, like um, you can't have a negative attitude towards it. You've got to see it that you've just got to develop it into something and that's going to happen on set. Yeah. And it means you need an effects unit to be shooting it and let those guys take the time it needs for them to, um, to, to work it out. Oh, and, yeah. I th- and so for example, on Return of Living Dead 3, the makeup effects for Julie with the glass and all that stuff yeah. in her face. I got Steve Johnson to do it. Well, he's a top, top notch. I mean, he's high, high end, right? Yeah. Well, I can't get Steve Johnson to do, there's tons of effects in Return of Living Dead 3. Yeah. And there's no money. It's a very low budget movie. Yeah. So I can't hire Steve Johnson to do all those effects. But I know that that, that the makeup for Julie is critical to the movie. Yeah. And I, I have to pay for that. I got to get somebody that is real experienced and real um, artistic and, and, you know, very established to do it. Yeah. But then as you go down, you have different types of effects. So finally with Riverman, the guy with the metal yeah. exoskeleton, uh, and Tom um, Tom Renoni was the the special effects um, supervisor on that, mm. and he found uh, I think the guy's name was is it Ralston somebody Ralston. Mm. He wasn't really an effects guy. He was a metal fabricator. Oh hell yeah! So he's not even. Yeah. So if I had taken that to a regular effects company, they would have sculpted out of clay all the pieces. Yeah. Or the exoskeleton, then they would have made a they would have um, made a um, a mold, and then they would have so then you'd have the negative mold, and then they would have poured it with foam latex, and they would have cooked it. They would yeah. have taken it out, and then somebody would have sanded all the edges, get all the little edges sanded down, and then they would have painted it to make it look like metal, you know, because that's how they do it. You know, you give a give a job to a carpenter he's going to solve it with a hammer and but what ralston did he just made it out of real metal hell yeah he just took a torch and he cut that thing unfortunately the poor actor was it was terrible it was heavy yeah it was cutting into him but you know what it, it was just real yeah <laughs> it looked just looked good you know and i think that's you know some of the effects in it were done by the art department yeah. You know, like the night before, I, I know I wanted to have a guy whose legs and, and feet were were just as a, like a pass-by shot mm. were separated. 
And I couldn't get any of the effects guys to do it because they were already sick of being asked to do more stuff. Yeah. And so the art department said, hey, we'll do it. It was Anthony Tremblay, great art director. Okay. He was the art director for um, Army of Darkness. Hell yeah. <laughs> and also Necronomicon for me. Yeah. And, and he did all the miniatures. I mean, the, the art direction is fantastic in that movie. Yeah. Um, you know, um, but so he said, yeah, we'll do it. And they just did it overnight for a couple hundred bucks, you know. Yeah. And it was because they just wanted to do their, they, it's fun, you know. Yeah. And it, but if you give it to one of the other companies, they're like, yeah, you got, they do it, as, you know, they're not willing, they have a method to how they produce something. Mm. But they don't really veer from it. You know, yeah. they do it the way they know how to do it. And sometimes that's not, that's not exactly, maybe not the best way. Yeah. Because um, you can, you know, you could do a special effect with a piece of cheese, you know, if yeah. you get the right angle and the right smoke and the right blinking lights, it doesn't have to, doesn't have to survive past the shot. Yeah. It only has to work that one time. No, no, exactly what you mean. And uh, while we're on the subject of practical effects and the shunting being one of the greatest practical effects, probably in my opinion, what would you say has probably been the best reaction? And I'll let you decide how to go with best. But uh, what would you say is the best reaction you've heard uh, to the shunting or seen personally to the shunting? Well, the one I'm most proud of is that Empire Magazine mm. in the UK, it's the big cinema magazine in England. Yeah. It's a big, 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 popular mainstream cinema magazine. Well, they did a they did a feature on the fifty grossest scenes of movie history. Yeah, and the shunting was number one. Oh fuck <laughs> yes! So I thought that's yes. great. <laughs> no, definitely. You know? I love the uh, the shunting. My wife doesn't really watch horror movies, but she watches. Uh, like she'll watch one every now and then with me and she's watched society with me one time. And now she's one of those people that, uh, because she's survived the shunting once she's like, she'll recommend it to people. She'll be like, Oh no, you got to watch this shit. It's great. It. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's definitely, it was a, it was a blast to do. Yeah. And I was certainly, I mean, to have Woody Keith and screwy bad George, you know, yeah. on to do that. You know, Woody to write and Screaming Mad George to, to realize it. Yeah. It's just, I mean, I mean, it's funny because, the, you know, when you're, when you're trying to do a movie, and I'm sure it's like this with music and everything else, there's a, um, it's kind of like the whole point is to try to exploit the creativity and the strength yeah. of your collaborator, just to go in the direction that you can. It's not like, you know, exactly how it's going to turn out until you start getting there yeah but i i remember the days when we shot the shunting were some of the most fun days of my life you know i, oh, was, yeah. I was so anxious to go into the set and i even put i put this big banner on the doorway into the set for the shunting and you know i put that old saying you know abandon hope all ye who enter here yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. it was just like I just thought, wow, this uh, this is why I want to make movies. Yeah. To be able to do the shunting, you know. Hell yeah. 
No, that's one of my favorites for sure. I only have a few more questions. I was going to jump forward and uh, ask about like uh, two more of your films and then the one you have of coming for, uh, up that you're producing, the Bloody Bridget at the end or whatever. That's the name of it, right? Bloody Bridget? Yeah, I'm helping Rick Elfman on that. He has a new movie called Aliens, Clowns, and Geeks. Yeah. And um, that actually on Saturday night, there's a, a double feature of it with the Forbidden Zone at the oh. drive-in in Van Nuys. I'm going to go to... And Rick will do a big clown show. Yeah. Outside, it's it's actually um, sponsored. It's part of the uh, the Valley Film Festival, and it's and it's sponsored by I forget the name of the company, but some big marijuana delivery service or something. Yeah. So there'll be a lot of pot girls selling pot mm -hmm. from there, from you know from like cigarette girls going yeah. from door to door, from car to car. And I thought that's worth that's worth going for. Hell yeah. He used to throw people in jail for that. I was about to say, hell of a time to be alive for sure. That's <laughs> that's for sure. But uh, so uh, jumping forward a few years, uh, one of my favorites that I feel is super underrated is The Dentist. But you, I feel like that one's really rumored for being based on a true story. But I've heard that that's not the, the case. Uh, do you mind debunking that rumor for me or, you know, or. Yeah, I don't think it's. Well, I'm sure there's been a dentist somewhere that has gone berserk. Yeah. No, it was a, um, it actually, Stuart was involved with that, him and Dennis. I had finished making um, Return to the Living Dead 3. Yeah. And um, which turned out really great. It's a terrible title. It's the worst title ever. But if you haven't seen the movie, it's really good. No, I love it's Return to really the Living Dead 3. I think it's one of the top five, um, you know, kind of Living Dead movies. Yeah. I mean, for zombie movies. You know, there aren't that many that are that good. Yeah. And I think that this is a good one. It's really. And so the head of the company, Trimark, that had made it, um, asked me if I wanted to do, I said, let's do another movie because he was happy with how it turned out. And I assumed that it would be better if I did what he had in mind. Yeah. And he said he had an idea to do a movie called The Dentist. And he even had a little piece of artwork of a of a drill in the foreground and someone in a chair, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I can't say that I was very enthused that inside I was enthusiastic, but I was enthusiastic to him because I really needed a job. Yeah. And, um, and I said, great, let's do it. And he said, but I don't want any sci-fi. I don't want any weirdness. I don't want any fantasy. I want it to be based on the idea of how scary it is mm. to go to the dentist. And it was quite a challenge to me. And so we started interviewing um, writers to pitch it. Yeah. And I think I must have heard 10, 15 pitches, you know, and nothing was really, nothing was really clicking. Yeah. And then it turned out that that company had had Stuart Gordon come in to see if they could do a movie with him. And he said he had this idea of doing a dentist movie. And they Kismet. said, well, we want to do a dentist movie. But actually, um, Brian is um, directing it. Um, and he said, oh, that's okay. I'll just write it. Yeah. And so he and Dennis Paoli had this treatment, which is basically the, the basis of the movie, yeah. which was basically that this dentist who's very fastidious very clean freaky sees his wife having an affair with the pool boy and he kills him. Yeah. Then he goes to work and then you really don't want to be a patient of his that day. Yeah. Cause this guy's unbalanced. 
And the movie, the, the, the original script, because we did develop it, really took place over about three hours. Okay. Starts with them leaving the house, going back, seeing her, killing her in the pool, boy, going to work, and up till lunch break. And um, so that's where that came from. And of, of course, it the, what happened was that the company felt like they wanted it to be expanded a little. Yeah. And, and Stuart and Dennis didn't want to do it. So they, by that time, I, and there's a much more complicated story there that, that's worth telling, but it's, it, you don't have time for that. But if, eventually during that period, when yeah. there was a little holdup on it, at that time, I was, um, I went to Vancouver to produce a movie called Crying Freeman, which you probably don't know about. It's a really great movie based on the Japanese manga and called Crying Freeman about a, a um, Yakuza assassin yeah. um, who cry, who's like brainwashed and he cries whenever he has to kill. Beautiful movie, really great movie yeah. and, and a bigger movie. And it was directed by Christoph Gans, who directed the first episode in the Necronomicon movie I did. Okay, Book of the Dead. This is yeah. his first feature. And um, now he's a huge, big time filmmaker and, and he's French and he's a yeah. big, big time guy. He did the, the Silent Hill movie, the first one. Yeah, that was awesome. And he did Brotherhood of the Wolf, and, you know, lots of stuff. But anyway, I went to Vancouver for a year to produce that. Mm. And, and I had told um, Mark Amin, the, the head of Trimark, that I was going to go do this other movie if he go ahead and get another director or whatever for the dentist because yeah. I and he didn't and whatever he had paid me I said you know I'll pay, I'll work it off on something else I don't want you to feel like I'm somehow costing you money yeah and um, but when I got back I needed a job and I called him about it and he said well we've got another producer on it now who's Pierre David who is a Canadian producer and he's going to, and he does lots of movies like the nurse and what they call occupation thrillers. And he was going to shoot it in Montreal with subsidies real cheap and everything. Mm. Yeah. But Mark, I mean, said, well, you know, but if you want to do it, if you want to direct it, I'll bring it back to LA and yeah. we'll do it here. And it was really kind of this, you know, this, um, it was kind of like Pierre David was somebody that a lot of people told me, I didn't want to work with because he's a real, he's very m much involved. Yeah. And, um, and a certain kind of character and he's made tons of movies. And actually I had, I called the, you know, my partner on, on crime Freeman and Necronomicon, Sammy Hadida, who produced all the resident evil movies and okay. stuff like that. He's a big, big producer, big distributor in France. Yeah. And I said, man, I need a job. I need to make some money. I've got four kids and you got, you got something because otherwise I got to do this dentist movie with Pierre David. And he said, okay, uh, you can be my producer on freeway. You know, that um, kind of, um, the, who is it that's in it? That famous actress. Um, but anyway, it's a Roger Stone kind of production. Yeah, and I've heard of the name of the movie. I just can't think. I, yeah. I'm with you. I can't place anything about it right now. Yeah, it, no, I it, know it. it's basically a version of Blue Red Riding Hood. Yeah. And um, and I thought about it and I went, well, if I do Freeway, the money was the same. Mm. And I said, if I do Freeway, I'm going to be dealing with kind of more big time people. Yeah. But I'm going to be like 
one of many producers representing my friend. But if I do the dentist, which is going to be a real pain in the ass and and crazy. Yeah. But it because this was Friday, but on Monday I'll be casting. And I said, okay, I'll be the I'll do the little pond. Yeah. And I went and did the dentist. And it was oh, yeah. crazy. They had gotten another writer in, Charles Finch. Mm. And he had done a pass and he had added a he had made it take place over two days, the killing yeah. at the beginning of the wife and the pool guy, instead of being real, was a, in the mind of the dentist. And there, and at the end, there was like this dental school and there was a cop. I yeah. mean, there was a couple of detectives. And so, and he was kind of fed up with working on it. So we had one meeting and then he bailed, he left, he moved back to England. And so during the pre-production of it, I worked, with um, a executive, um, Sherry Bryant at um, Trimark. Mm. And we just kind of started re rewriting the script and trying to find an ending. And yeah. actually I didn't find the ending of the movie until I was doing location scouting. The other thing he added that was really great, he added that the dentist had all these theme rooms Yeah, and that he was an opera fan. Yeah, And I, that really helped it for me. What I really leaned on, it was hard for me. I'd never done a movie that had like a... Um, body count i i've just never really usually in my movies they come back anyway yeah you know? and society is just one big i body. don't really kind of have a regular body count yeah and also the dentist you know a lot of what he did he was such bad stuff that um it was hard for me to sympathize you know until yeah. i realized you can tell it from his point of view and in his mind what he's doing is not what's really happening and so he loves beauty and he loves opera and he's, yeah. you know, he's a, uh, and I think, and that, and so you're seeing, and I've always loved that thing where you're seeing two realities, yeah. you know, there's two different realities. And so that was kind of the way I got, got into it. Yeah. And of course the budget was mammothly small and the, and the, um, but I had just finished working with Christoph Gans on Crime Freeman. And Christoph is a, he's a cinematic like genius. He knows yeah. every movie. Hell yeah. And he's like, he's all about the formal aspects of film and all these, you know, referencing movies always. So when I made the, the dentist, I really kind of was tripping off on that. And I mm. really, it really, re it really reflects a lot of what I learned watching Christoph about, yeah. of, about the more formal way of structuring, structuring, uh, you know, doing shots and transitioning. Yeah. And then for all the killings, I just decided to, because also, you know, with, with uh, Christoph, he was always referencing other movies. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'm just going to base all the killings on Hitchcock killings. Hell yeah. So I would just, I would watch these, I watched these Hitchcock movies and I'd base that I would go really try to make the shots similar yeah. to what was happening with Hitchcock. And for the effects, of course, we had no money. Yeah. And um, so I, you know, you know, we couldn't, I mean, here, here, this is the way this movie went. On the first day of shooting, I'm getting ready for the first shot and we yeah. have a, scene that we're going to shoot where there's a dead dog you know yeah and the production manager takes me aside 
and he says, listen, um, couldn't afford to get a, a, a um, dog car, you know, like a, a dog effect, uh, yeah. you know, a puppet dog for the shot. We tried, we went and tried it, it was too expensive. I mean, there were, it's not like it's hard to find, you know? Yeah. And um, he said, so we couldn't get it. So he goes over to the back of the truck. So we just got this dead goat instead. <laughs> Yeah. I thought he I thought he was kidding because often on the first day of production somebody'll do a practical joke on you. Yeah. It's pretty typical. And I I just laughed. I thought, "Oh, right." Yeah. But that was true. We had a goat instead of a dog. <laughs> and so I had to make the goat work, you know. But yeah. that was the way that movie worked. When I wanted to have some like a little section of the of the dentist office waiting room have some place for kids to play a little kid kitty section yeah well of course the producer wasn't gonna let us get it we, there's no money for that yeah. so i gave my credit card to the art director who went to ikea bought the little units we wanted and after we shot it took it back and got the credit it's, hell yeah that's that's the way that that movie went and the effects um once again it was um I think it was, who was the effect supervisor? That was Anthony Tremblay. And not okay. Anthony Tremblay, Anthony Ferrante. Okay. Who is okay. now famous for, for directing all of the um, Sharknado movies. Oh, hell and, yeah. and, and doing all the music, which is where he made the movie money. Because yeah. Sharknado, that's, um, that's um, Asylum. They pay nothing. Yeah. Nothing for a script, nothing to direct. But... <laughs> He wrote the mu. He did the music with his friend, and he said he makes lots of money on the music. Oh hell yeah! You know because he owns it. Yeah. So anyway, he got this guy Josh. Um, I forget, but he was in Texas, and he was um, so Anthony. Basically, he did the effects for the cost of his airplane flight to come to L.A. Yeah. He wanted to get a credit, and so oh, yeah. all that weird effects of the you know when she gets her teeth pulled out yeah the tongueless barbara and stuff like no, that no, i don't mean the pulling part but just the makeup effects yeah now, the mouth was made i think it was made by steve yeager if i'm not mistaken so we needed a real experienced guy for that but yeah. we couldn't have felt we couldn't afford to have him come on the set yeah we could only we could afford to have him make one half of the mouth <laughs> so we only built one half of the mouth we had to watch do the other side. We'd flip the film because <laughs> right? all these are shot on on thirty five. Yeah. And, and then the and then so those that was a big mouth. And Anthony Ferrante actually was a was the effects director. So he would be off in one side of the set with this big mouth and a camera and then doing the shots inside the mouth. And I'd run over and look at it and then he'd oh, yeah. shoot it. And so. We, I mean, that's how it was. A, it was such a cheap movie. And yeah. I think one of the things that saved it was was getting Corbin Burnson to play the dentist. Yeah, hell yeah. Because who would have ever thought that he would be such a natural? Yeah. For a horror movie, I mean, he he, I mean, he was a real collaborator. He wasn't just like the actor. You yeah. Know? When we were shooting, he always had an idea of how to, you know how to get through to the next scene. And I, yeah. I really, I, you know, he really had a lot more to do with that movie than just doing a, a pretty memorable 
performance no hell yeah he definitely kills in that one and he does an awesome job in the sequel as well fast forward a little bit more to uh if you don't mind what made you return to the reanimator story with beyond reanimator i know that the rumor was that you guys had a story lined up for him to go to the white house but that never happened or yeah well bride of reanimator originally was going to be the white house yeah and it was during the reagan era but when i finally made it you know it was it was um you know, when I finally made Bride, I really just went and took all the parts of the stories that had we hadn't done yeah. and put it in there. Hell yeah. And um, but when but then 13 years later, what I I use Bride of Reanimator the same way I I mean I use Beyond Reanimator the same way I use Bride of Reanimator. Yeah. Which is I used it as a way to get some other movies made. Okay. So with Bride. <laughs> I used it to make Society and Bride. Yeah. So I could direct. On Beyond, at the end of the 90s, I think it was after I did The Dentist 2, mm-hmm. I was invited to the Sitges Film Festival, which is just south of Barcelona. It's the biggest one now. I mean, it's the best one in Europe now. Yeah. But to show The Dentist 2. And I went there and showed it. And then I met the distributor um, was a guy who had been with the company that distributed society in Spain. And I had met them when I went to Sitges for society 10 years earlier. So this was 1998 in the fall. And so that, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do because I really needed these movies are so small Hmm. The fees are small. So the big problem with making small movies, low budget movies, is that the worst problem is you don't get a fee. The fees are real small. Yeah. And that means you've got to really make a lot of movies to make a living. Yeah. And I had been trying for years to do a label to do. And I had one that I'd sold to Dimension, but they never made any of them. Yeah. It's called The Seven Deadly Sins of Horror. And I had lined up all these famous horror directors and actors and effects guys. And each one would get a, uh, a deadly sin and we'd make them. But Dimension didn't do it because I, I needed to make movies back to back. And I also knew that if you have a label, that the mo- each, it's very difficult to tell whether a movie's going to work or not. I mean, yeah. you, you put the effort into it and sometimes they work. And sometimes they don't. And it's not because of any more or less effort. It's just luck of, it's where the stars are or something. Who gets involved, you know? I mean, imagine society if Screaming Mad George had been a putt. Yeah. What have you got? If the shunting didn't work. If the shunting doesn't work, what have you got? So, I mean, this is a big, you know, it's an issue. And um, so with... um, so I had been trying to do that. I went to Spain, showed the movie. I talked about it. I went to the press conference. And um, then this guy took me to lunch. You know, he was, he said, look at now I've, I've got this whole company in Barcelona. I, I bought this company Filmax yeah. and I'm distributing and I want to get into production. And I wonder if you could um, make, a move that kind of movie like the dentist movie or society in barcelona in spain yeah and i said yeah, i think so i mean i made two movies in rome that nobody even knows were shot in rome 
you know, from beyond and dolls. Yeah. Nobody goes, oh, those movies were shot in Italy. Who the hell knows? You know? yeah. And I said, I think you can make it anywhere, but I think it'd be better to do a label and uh, make a series of movies and then yeah. they'll have value. When I would go to the video store back in the day, I would go to the section for Hammer Films, for example. Yeah. And I'd see all the Hammer VHSs and I'd find a couple I hadn't seen. I'd never even heard of. Yeah. And I'd go, huh, this must not be a very good Hammer movie, but I'd better rent it because it's a Hammer movie. And so that's the value of having a label. It tells you, it gives you a context. You're not just, it's not just from out of nowhere. You know, yeah. you kind of have a context for it. When and I was, uh, to comment on that real quick, when I was younger, that's what, uh, like when I was starting to really get into horror, there was the, that's when those eight films to die for were starting to come out, those labels, those movies. And those were the types of movies that none of them were honestly rememberable or great. Like none of them were terrible either, but it's just nothing that, you know, I carried with me through time. But back then I remember if it had the eight films to die for on it, I like needed to see it. So it was. Yeah, you would get that one. Yeah. And you'd go, oh, that one sucked. Oh, yeah. but the other one was good, you know? Yeah. And I think that's the, that's, it's like if you like a band and yeah. you'll listen to their B-sides, you know, yeah. you're just not listening to the hits. You're going, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, that they kind of didn't live up to it there. But, you know, you, it's just part of being a fan, of yeah. being a, you know, of enjoying a, a, you know, a movie. Yeah. And so he went for it. it within... Actually, within three months, two months, I had moved to Spain. I'd moved to Barcelona and we started the project and I needed, I told him he should start his own sales company. He should do the sales himself Yeah. with the company. I mean, this was not, I mean, this was a, not like a, it was a kind of a medium, small to medium sized company. And yeah. they did lots of distribution. And um, so we called it the Fantastic Factory. Oh, yeah. And the idea was to make these English language movies with all in Spain with all Spanish crews yeah. um, genre for the international market, utilizing the subsidies you get in Spain. Yeah. And so that's what we, so, but I needed, so within being there one and a half months, we, I went back to LA with them to the American film market. And I met with Mark Amin again, the guy who was the head of Trimark. And we showed them a package of four movies, pre-sale. And um, so I had two movies, two scripts I already had. Mm. One was Dagon, which I had, I had um, contracted Dennis Paoli to write back in 1985, I guess. Yeah. It's basically, it's Shadow Over Incident. Yeah. And the other, so it's a Lovecraft one. Yeah. And the other one was Faust. Hell yeah. Which was based on the comic book of Faust, which is yeah. kind of a porno type comic book. And um, the other one I found was I wanted to do something that wasn't like horror or something. I figured I had a comic book movie. I had a, you know, I had a Lovecraft kind of horror. Yeah. I had, and then I thought I needed something that was more like more family friendly and usually big bug movies are pretty good for that and so oh, yeah. i got a movie called <clears throat> a rat yeah. giant alien spider movie and then i had the big lure was the reanimator sequel yeah so don't even need a story you know and so that was what i used 
to get the fantastic because then they bought the package before oh, yeah. we shot it and that so i used beyond reanimator to get that project going and then i had been working on many stories for it yeah but then all of a sudden i had to get serious and i worked with miguel tejada flores who's actually a guy who lives in oregon and finally we we got the you know we came up with the final version of it to shoot oh yeah now that's awesome and uh not to spoil the movie for anybody so spoiler alert but at the very end you know it kind of leaves it open for herbert west to have another adventure what would you uh if you could i had i thought i had it i thought i had it financed last year oh the animator unbound yeah and it's herbert west kind of as dr moreau he's got he's got his lab and he's making he's making um reanimated augmented soldiers for black ops oh hell yeah He's got a hydron collider yeah <laughs> and it goes pretty crazy but oh, really? you know it keeps they, these things keep falling through so yeah very frustrating and no, i definitely feel that i'm sorry to uh, hear that i hope that gets made soon though because i would love to hear that myself uh, or see that myself but to the point of your podcast there was a um i had the you know on faust mm. i I've never been, I was never a fan of like, um, you know, heavy metal music. Yeah. You know? I, I came, I, sort of my period was kind of before that. But with Faust, I felt like it needed to be metal. It should be, it should have songs, you know? Yeah. And I got, I, I talked to Roadrunner Records, which was a metal kind of, I guess they're a distributor yeah. um, the of metal music. Yeah. And they they sent me like 60 heavy metal CDs. Hell yeah. <laughs> and um, said I could pick anything I wanted for the movie for like almost no money, you know. And Hell so yeah. I listened to all those things. And what I learned about heavy metal that was that I, whenever I would listen to it, I'd go, it's like, ah. yeah. you know, I didn't know how you dig that. You know? Yeah. And then so I had to listen to it with earphones because then I would turn it up. And I discovered that the secret to it was, is it had to be loud as fuck. <laughs> and if Hell it yeah. gets loud enough, then you hear the song. Hell but yeah. if you don't, if you don't get it, if you don't get it bigger than you in the room you're in, it's just a lot of like static. And so then I started getting a lot of appreciation for Hell it. Yeah. And I picked all these, um, you know, then I, you know, I, I got like Fear Factory and yeah. the Poltera and Hypo Negative and Cradle of Filth, which is not a big one, but I, I kind of liked them a lot. Oh, um, yeah. So it was, you know, it was really kind of a lot of fun yeah. to, um, you know, to do that, to kind of have that experience and have it work within the movie. I thought it, it was a lot of, a lot of fun to to have that because I'd never done a movie where I actually had a bunch of songs yeah. on the soundtrack. Oh, I yeah. usually just have a soundtrack. Yeah. I have a score made by somebody or something like that, but hell yeah, no, that's awesome. And then I, I get what you're saying. Not only to have like the exposure to all that music, but then to have that much music to kind of like go through, it must be like not being a fan of it. You kind of don't already have that bias that some people would have going into it. You know, everything is like wide open pretty much. No. And also, but the, but the, the frustrating part of it was a lot of the stuff that I really liked, yeah. um, there wasn't a place for it in the movie. Yeah. You can only, you've got to go with the movie. You can't force it. You know? So you've got to find things that kind of fit with the movie. 
and we couldn't we couldn't remix it. We just had to take the um, masters and use what they had already mixed. Right? Yeah, because we couldn't afford that. It would have cost us too much money to like take apart the stems and remix it for the movie. Yeah. So it's it's not like the best, but it's what you got. Oh yeah. So my final question for you pretty much is, uh, you know, what can you tell me about this upcoming project that you produced, you know, uh, Bloody Bridget? And then do you have any other projects coming up that you would want to talk about that you, you know, can? Well, there's nothing that um, is, I mean, with Bloody Bridget, that's Rick Elfman, who, yeah. who, uh, I don't know if you know who Rick Elfman is. Danny Elfman's brother? You ever, yeah, I'm, but did you ever know of a band called Oingo Boingo? Yeah. You know, Oingo Boingo, Dead Man's Party and those things. Yeah. Well, Rick, Rick, Rick's the older brother. He put together the band. Right? Oh, hell yeah. He owned Oingo Boingo. Yeah. And Oingo Boingo was a big deal in LA when it was around. And I, I always loved it. And their shows were very kind of, um, they did skits and stuff. You know, they did. Oh, yeah. They were, they were kind of artistic events. You know? Yeah. And um, and so Rick made a movie, basically, kind of like an Oingo Boingo movie. Yeah. And it's called The Forbidden Zone. I oh. saw it. I, I mean, I remember seeing it at the video store on VHS. I guess it must have been the year it was put out. Yeah. Or probably 85 or something. And I, I watched that movie. I went nuts. And I actually gave it to everybody I knew for Christmas. You know? Oh, yeah. And... Um, it's just the best cult movie ever. Yeah. Danny Elfman plays the devil, you know. Oh, hell yeah. Um, and it's got great music and great bits, and it's outrageous. And actually, I was, I was happy to um, encourage a friend of mine in the, when was it? It must have been the early, early about 15 years ago, mm. to, um, to it, it kind of gotten lost. And so I encouraged him to try to, get it back into onto you know blu-ray or something yeah. and so he straightened out there was a lot of owners involved so he got together with rick and they straightened it all out and then they colorized it hell yeah and the colorized version of course is much better there's no reason to ever watch the black and white yeah it was never meant to be in black and white and now um it's just a great movie if you haven't seen it you should watch it. It's really, really kind of one of the best cult movies of all time. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, and then Rick last year, a year and a half ago, he did another movie called Aliens, Clowns, and Geeks, mm -hmm. which isn't a musical one, but it's just really crazy. And that's what I'm going to the double. I'm going to a double feature on, on Saturday. Yeah. And then Rick's next movie is going to be called Bloody Bridget. Oh yeah, and it's based on the real, you know, on on Santeria, on on you know, voodoo. Yeah, Haitian voodoo, New Orleans yeah. voodoo, and it's and so Baron Samadhi is that character, death, the death kind of god guy. He's got yeah. a top hat. He smokes a cigar, you know. And Bridget is like I think she's the only white deity in. Um, in voodoo yeah. she's irish she's red-haired she's irish and so she's like the wife of um of baron samadhi in the underworld yeah and in this the gimmick of this movie and don't quote me because 
I've only read the script once. I, yeah. I certainly talked to Rick about it, so I may get to get it wrong. But the gimmick is that that Bridget is kind of a kind of a pole dancer in, in Van Nuys, which yeah. Van Nuys in L.A. is kind of not a very upscale place, right? Yeah. And she is mistaken by Baron Samadhi supernaturally to be the actual Bridget. She's not. Yeah. The mistaken identity. And so he marries her and, and she becomes, uh, you know, she does a lot of cannibalism and, and, <laughs> and uh, other fun stuff. Yeah. And, uh, but it's great. There's, there's great music to it. And, and it's just totally wacky horror. It's definitely a horror movie oh, yeah. in Rick Elfman's unique <laughs> way. So I'm yeah. really looking forward to that. Hell yeah. I appreciate you sharing that, man. I appreciate you coming on and everything too and uh, talking with me for yeah, a And few one hours. other thing is that I think in a month or so, mm. you can buy my novel called The Pope. Okay, hell yeah. So I've got a novel coming out. I wrote it quite a while ago for a, based on a script I did with John Penny, the writer of uh, Return of Living Dead 3. Yeah. And it's about a seminary dropout who dresses up like the Pope and kills pedophile priests. Hell and yeah. It's actually a superhero origin movie. So I'll yeah. let it go at that. But it's it's very satirical and, and a lot of fun. Oh fuck yeah. I'll definitely be picking that up myself and I'll make sure to share it around and make you know when it uh when it starts to have more information come out so people can keep an eye out for it and stuff like that. So Okie doke man. Yes sir thank Good you to talk to you. It was nice to meet you and uh enjoy the rest of your evening. Sure. Bye bye. And as usual, I just want to say thanks again for listening and make sure you check back next week as my guest is going to be the one and only Gary Mutley of one of my favorite hardcore bands, Billy Club Sandwich, and of the Upgrade Podcast. So make sure you check back next week for that. Go follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Go check out Loudmouth Threads through this awesome original podcast artwork and stay safe.